Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM. And particularly today to our American listeners, it's great to have you with us. I'm Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. And here I interview authors about their latest novels. Just one quick word before we start. My voice is a little croaky at times during the interview and I apologize for that. I was just getting over a bout of COVID, so uh, unfortunately a lot of know what that experience is like. Today my guest is Scott Blackburn of North Carolina, whose debut It Dies With You is a real slice of Southern life and a thriller to boot. A simple tale beautifully told with great characters steeped in the locale. Scott tells us all about It Dies With You and something of the experience of the modern author in putting a book out there these days. Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, Scott. Hey, Paul. Glad to be here, man. Ah, it's great to have you. It feels like we've been setting this up for a while. It's been coming, hasn't it? Absolutely. It has been a while. So we're going to talk about your debut novel, It Dies With You. I, I like that title, by the way. It's, it's kind of truthful, but at the same time, it's got this ironic sense to it as well. Yeah. It, uh, do you want to talk about that? <laughs> well, yeah, no, no, sure. Please do. I, I was going to leave it because I wasn't sure whether you'd say anything, but my point about it is, I suppose, basically is that you know, everything does die with you. And that's the dilemma that, that HUD has because he's got to find out these things about his father and you can't ask questions anymore. And these things start coming out. But of course, nothing ever does die in a sense, does it? It's always there, you know, and it comes back. Exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a title. And thank you for saying that because that's a title uh, that I had before I had the story and, right. I, and I fought for it. I didn't fight hard for it. I think they all liked it. But, you know, they, they come back with you. Um, like, hey, what's some alternate titles? I'm like, man, are they not like it? And they, are they going to shoot it down? But uh, in the end, actually pretty quickly, within like a day of me sending other titles, they're like, no, let's go with this. I'm like, good, good. That's, uh, yeah, but because it does kind of like wake you up a little bit when you see that title. It's almost like it's speaking to the reader. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, so. it definitely works. Um, anyway, no, what my first question was actually going to be was about the fact that the book's been out there now for about six weeks. So you're a published mm -hmm. author. And the reception's been good. I mean, what's it been like? Man, it is everything I dreamed it would be. Uh, I haven't taken a day off, uh, right. but it's work. I'm glad to do. I'm happy to do. I'm happy to push push myself every day, uh, promote it every day in some small way. Um, so, man, it, it's it's been awesome. You know, at first, when it goes out there, there's some anxiety. You, mm. You're waiting on reception. Um and mainly reception from people, you know, like locally, because um, mm. I was already getting, I had quite a few like Goodreads reviews. A lot of people requested the galley. Um, so that kind of, that part was kind of uh, over with, you know, as far as mm. like ripping the bandaid off for me. So, right, yeah. you know, I was used to getting feedback, but uh, it was kind of interesting and it still is interesting to see what people around you um think about it because a lot of people in my area have supported me which is great um but it's been great man people have loved it um they're ready for more um you know they'll they'll talk about it they'll talk about the characters things they liked uh so man it's been awesome it's been something i've uh, i've worked at for a long time and uh i'm glad to be in this situation and it's not something i take for granted for sure no, but it does sound, I can, I can feel it. I mean, even from this distance, I can feel that kind of reaction. I can see the reaction that's coming on Twitter and things like that. So I can see the way that people are reacting to the book. What was your actual ambition for the book? 
you're a pretty ambitious guy, actually, when it comes to publishing this book. What, what, what did you what do you really want for this? Um, I wanted it to be something I could launch a career with. Um, and I'm not sure if I'll ever be able to write full time. I would like to write most of the time and maybe teach part of the time. You know, <laughs> that would be awesome. So I wanted something that that gave me a good start um, and got some attention. Um, but my ambitions are pretty high for it. Um, and so far, I feel like things are going in that direction. Um, you know, it, it's doing well in the United States. Um, it's doing well in this region. Um, and I'm hoping to go beyond that, you know, some international audiences. That would be fantastic for me. Um, some film interest would be great. Um, all that stuff. I mean, everything that comes with it. Um, the whole package, yeah. Yeah, the whole package. I'm here for the whole package, uh, absolutely. And I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to uh, to make sure I meet those goals. And I've set them pretty high, so we'll, we'll see if I can pull it off. <laughs> well, you put in the effort in. That's a good start. Um, Certainly. A prize winner or a bestseller? Prize winner. Yeah, I thought you'd say that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about some of this journey then to get in publishing. And it, I think we want to talk about the determination that we just mentioned, in fact, actually. Tell us about getting an agent, getting the agent you wanted, in fact. I did get the agent I wanted. Um, I will say this. This is my second agent. Um, you know, I worked with one when I was, I hadn't been writing two or three years when I landed my first one. Um, and we worked together on a first book that almost got picked up by some pretty big publishers. It, you know, it, it kind of made it through the, the, you know, the editorial board and all that. And, but hmm. at the last minute, a couple of them pulled out, which is fine with me because I feel like this one has meant to be my, my debut. Um, I sent this book, an early version of it to that agent. They weren't on the same page with me. Um, right. but I was so, I felt so good about this book and the two or three authors that, you know, were, were helping me along during this book that they felt the same about it as I did. And, um, and that kind of gave me that extra boost of confidence to, to know what was time to move on. Let and, me get and, this right. Uh, this, this agent was actually saying this wasn't the book to publish. Yeah. I said it was not sellable. Said my, my fiction wasn't <laughs> sellable. And I was like, whatever. I was like, whatever. Uh, yeah. he, he, he rejected I, I, the Beatles at the time as well, probably. Absolutely. Uh, and so <laughs> I felt like, uh, I felt like for about half an hour and, and and no more than that, it really bothered me. I felt, uh, I was like, man, I just put two years into this and I've given mm -hmm. this, uh, this agent four or five years of, of just my hardest work. Um, and so I felt a little betrayed because, uh, they were so dismissive and so mm -hmm. quickly they read it like two days and the reading of it didn't seem to line up with what I'd even written. So I was like, um, so that helped me kind of get over it 30 minutes later. And I was like, I'd already had my eye on a particular agent for a long time. As far as I was like, if I ever have another agent, this is the one, this is like the, the top dog for me. And so I made a list that night and, um, and I put her name at the top. I um, mean, I still have, it's funny cause I still have the, the document somewhere. Um, and that night I actually sent a query and I woke up the next morning I was out on a walk with my wife. Um, and she wanted to read it. And so I was, I stopped dead in my tracks, obviously. And I was like running back to the house to send an email. Yeah. But she wanted it exclusively. Um, and so I gave her a, a reading period, um, I think six or seven weeks, because, you know, can't give them a year, right? You know, no, no, right. Yeah. Out there. 
So that lapsed and she, and she acknowledged that. And she was like, feel free to query. I'm, you know, I'm still going through it. You know, it's been pretty busy. Um, and so I would say a few weeks after that, um, I got an email back, um, but it wasn't from her. It was from um, her co-agent. Right. So I didn't know who I didn't know at the time. Um, and she left some great feedback. It was a, it was a pretty long email. Um, and it wasn't a rejection. I knew it wasn't a rejection. I didn't know what it was. All right. Cause I've seen rejection and I've seen acceptances and, and different capacities. But so what I wanted to do was like, man, I felt like I had my hook in. I was like, I got to reel this one in. So I was like, can we set up a phone call? So a few days later we had a phone call, um, me and the co-agent and, um, we talked for about an hour and somewhere in that conversation, she, she said the term, when we represent you. Um, and, and, and I had to pause. I was like, wait a minute. Did she said when? And so she just slipped landed, it in. Yeah. Yeah, man. I was, I was beside myself. Uh, and so I have two agents. I have her who is now a full agent at Trident and, uh, doing great. And then I have the one, the original one I queried. So I have two names listed as my agents and I'm listed on both their pages, which is weird and rare and awesome. Um, but yeah, so the, the agent I had queried was Ellen Levine. And I think you would know a lot, you know, a lot of her yeah, writers, yeah, sure. uh, Michael, Michael Fair Smith. Um, yes, of course. She, she has a ton and she has a ton. Mm. And then Martha Whittish is my other agent and she's young. Um, I think she's a Cornell grad, uh, right. super intelligent, witty, uh, just amazing. So, uh, I consider her to kind of my everyday agent. Um, you know, I, I speak to her quite a bit. So have, have you kind of come to trust them and your editor when it comes to your, your material, if you like? I have. And that, that's part of the reason that, um, in Martha's original email, she was saying stuff that really resonated with me. Right. And I was like, wow, she, she knows what I'm going for here. And then when I got my editor, um, I felt the same way, you know, it was a wake up call, but at the same time, it wasn't stuff I disagreed with because mm. uh, they could have said some stuff that I disagreed with. And I don't know how I would have handled that because you mm. have an opportunity sitting in front of you. But luckily uh, it was stuff that really resonated and I felt like uh, we were all on the same page. Um, and it, so it's been a, it's been an awesome process. Um, and then I, I do feel super lucky to have landed who I landed and uh, everything's been awesome with, with them and they're accessible and uh, they give great feedback and, and they work their butt off for me. So it's, it's been awesome. I think you do need to be lucky, but I think you get luckier when you work harder. Let's just say that. Um, you create more opportunities for luck, yeah, right? Yeah. And of course, one of the things is now, and this is another thing about modern writing is that writing the book's part of it, but there's also this other part, which is like, for instance, you contacted me. I had your book on my radar, actually, as it happens. But then you contacted me and said, hey, would you like to do an interview? And so that coincided really nicely. But you kind of got to do that kind of thing for yourself as well then, haven't you? And go to the bookshops, do the book signings, and just make sure that you do the talks and get this book out there in the public face. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I knew that going in. Um, I didn't know exactly what it would look like, but... Um, you know, I had other friends publish before me and they kind of filled me in on that. I also used to, you know, have some buddies that were in music and it was the same way. Um, mm. You got to put yourself out there and you have to work hard every day and you can't wait on someone else to, to make moves for you. Uh, so I, it was something I was excited to do. Um, 
like today I, I'm talking with you and in three hours I have a live interview. Yeah, I saw that. And, uh, yeah. And, and in between that, I have to go sign some books. Um, so it's work. Like I said earlier. So if you just suddenly out. walk out the door, I'll know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> that's it. So yeah, it, it's work I love to do. And, uh, you know, it, whether it's on Twitter, uh, stuff like that, you know, it, it's all for a purpose. You know, I like making connections with people and I like getting my work out there and I like helping promote their work. So it all kind of works together. Um, and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, no, it's all to the good. Let's take it back a little bit. I'm guessing you were always a big reader. Did that include crime fiction? So here's, um, here's the truth. (laughs) So (laughs) growing up, I was one of those kids that during the summer, you know, they, they would give elementary kids reading challenges and they, they still do that. So yeah, I would, I would be near the top of my class. Uh, same in middle school. When I get to high school, I kind of lost my drive. I think I kind of, kind of got bogged down by, uh, you know, the books they were making me read in high yeah, school. Yeah. It's so and many kinda, people have this same problem though, don't they? Yeah. I, yeah, they do. And most of them don't find their way back. Mm. So I would say when I was around 20, 21 years old, I had a cousin who was, you know, we would, we would go to the beach with their family like every summer and she'd always have her beach bag stuffed with like true crime books. Right. Um, and, and they seem like forbidden almost like, Oh my God, do I really want to read about Charles Manson and uh, the Zodiac killer? Um, and so I remember asking one day if I could, you know, borrow one. And so through most of my twenties, that's all I would read was true crime. I right. would read about every serial killer I could find or, um, forensic, uh, psychology, uh, criminal profiling, all that stuff. So it was pretty much 99%, um, nonfiction and early thirties, 32, 33 is when I started reading crime fiction. I'm 39 now. So around the time I was like, you know what, I want to see if I can write something, uh, you know, I'd piddled around with some words before on some blogs and just right, having yeah, yeah. fun, but I was not a writer. Um, in any sense of the word, I don't think. So I was like, if I'm going to write stuff, it's going to be fiction. And I like, you know, I like to watch and read stuff where people die <laughs> or something <laughs> bad happens. So I was like, I better start reading some, uh, some Southern fiction, some crime fiction. And so I started with uh, Wiley Cash and Tom Franklin yeah, right. and Michael Ferris Smith. That's where I started my journey. Um, so I immediately fell in love with uh, good fiction and I was so glad I could find it in, in adulthood and it's, and it's brought me here. So it was the best decision I ever made to, to pick up some books for sure. So can we say those guys, that's where you kind of got the landscape because you write in that Southern rural noir now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you have Wiley, he lives, um, he's currently in the mountains right. um, near Asheville, North Carolina. He used to live on the coast so he's written. You're about kind of in between, aren't you? You, you. Whoops. Yeah, I, I am smack in between the two, like right dead in the middle of the state. I was smack my notes off the table. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm in between those. Uh, you know, a few hours from the the mountains, uh, a few hours from the coast, and so I feel like there was not a lot of writers in my area or my part of the state. So I was always, you know that always kind of drove me to, to write this part of the state because I didn't feel like a lot of people were doing it. So it's been a lot of fun uh, for sure. Yeah. Cause that's the other thing. I mean, there's obviously this influence you can pick up from other writers, 
But there's the fact that, of course, this is your home place as well. You know, you live in the middle of this country you're writing about. So it's as much about the landscape and the people from the way you feel about the place you live, isn't it? Absolutely. Did it feel natural then writing that rural noir style, connecting those things up? You know, did it did you just sort of fall into that? It did. It did. Um, And I would say I'm not where I struggle maybe would be if I sat down to write a traditional thriller where it just has to be a page turner, every page, Um, constant action, constant cliffhangers. Um, So I would think just growing up in this area, everything's somewhat slow and meandering. And I'm not saying my book meanders or drags, but it's a bit of a slow burn. It's not, uh, it takes some time. You know who the people are pretty well before stuff starts happening to them. You you know, I kind of start with character and build from there. So I think um, just growing up in this area has has definitely added to my sensibilities. And then, you know, if you read Wiley stuff or, or Michael Ferris Smith or uh, Ron Rash, I think they all kind of have that, you know, similarity. None of them. I'm not open to one page and, and going through 300 in one night because I absolutely have to. It's one I enjoy over like a week or two's time and just really glad um, I could sit down with it every day. Um so I'm hoping it resonates that way with people because that's kind of how that's kind of how I write and how I read. I think it does. I think that for me is part of the interest in the Southern wise. This the slow is not the right word. It's this kind of considered and careful and polite way of, of putting it. And what happens is as you're getting this story that feeds out apparently slowly, there's an awful lot going on underneath or there's an awful lot of story between characters and you've got you pick up on that. So this, the pace is in it. But it's right. actually got this kind of casual, easy feel to it. That's that's the thing that sort of strikes me about the Southern Noir, you know, and the sort of difference in the feel. And you get that with people like Chris Offit and Daniel Woodrill as well, on top of the right, as yes. we've already mentioned. Um, how easy was it for you then to present that landscape and the people um, in a way that kind of conveys that Southernness, but isn't kind of like a checklist of Southern things to put in a book? Right. So he starts off in a city. He's working in a city that's, you know, it's a little more urban. That's a real city. So Flint Creek is fictional, kind of based yeah, on some right. towns near, yeah, near where I was from. But then places like Greensboro and uh, yeah, Winston, real Salem, places. Mm. real places. So um, I would say the fact, I, th- I think what helps my book convey like pretty accurate South is that he kind of moves away from the super rural area, all right? Mm. And even the way he speaks in the book, he's kind of, he even mentions in the book, he kind of lost some of his twang. Um, I would say uh, a podcast host recently said I was about a seven on a scale of 10 for Southern uh, <laughs> accent. I, I don't know. So I, I would say it's pretty close. I would say I was closer to a nine at some point in my life and some of that twang is worn off. So I kind of use a narrator that I can relate to very strongly as far mm-hmm. as, geographically and that helped me paint the area around him um he mentions you know farms and uh and the fact that 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 people are obsessed with barbecue and and things like that but he doesn't um in his narration beat people over the head with it and name every single thing that makes north carolina this part of the state you know because i think at that point you know people can see you're trying to do that because people that aren't from this area you know they do do that 
mm. and it comes off his phone and you're like, oh, I got to mention all these things that people think I'm from that area. Cause there's people in New York probably trying to write North Carolina. Yeah. You see. can tell, you can tell pretty quickly. Mm. Um, they are. <laughs> Cause they don't, they don't understand what is natural and what just right. is laboring it and pushing the point. Cause this goes to something we discussed actually just before we came on air, which was about dialogue. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it depends from character to character as well, of course, in the book, because not everybody speaks the same way, but um, there's only an element. There's enough to give people a flavor, but I suppose the point is you want it to be accessible. Absolutely. Um, I didn't, um, again, I I didn't want to bag people over the head with it or, or turn people off because really I wanted to get the story across. I don't want them to think, Oh, this guy's super Southern. Uh, Mm. He's just added to the, you know, the Southern canon down there. Like that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to tell a story and I wanted to make it as realistic as possible. Um, You know, and for me, it wouldn't have been as realistic. Um, Some people can write that super dialectical Southern fiction and it's real for them because they grew up around it. I mm. grew up around some of that. And then I grew up around people, you know, that were kind of middle of the road. You know, they sound a little more uh, neutral, I guess you could say. So I, I tried to get a little bit of all those people into my book. Yeah. And I think that's a fair point because otherwise you wind up writing for just a handful of people. I mean, if you want to just write for your neighbors, that's fine. But, you know, that's not what yeah, you're I about, wanted to sell it? something. I wanted to sell a few books. <laughs> <laughs> um. One thing before we move on to the book, and we will tell people the story, actually, by the way, you know, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more. But I wanted to say one thing before we did. You took this other big step before becoming a writer officially or before this book. And that was the MFA at Mountain View, mm-hmm. which I believe is in New Hampshire for a start. So, <laughs> no worries me. Why? Why New Hampshire? <laughs> Uh, well, so I told you when I first started reading Wiley's book was one of the first, I picked right, Land yes. Home, which I see it next to mine over there. Yeah. Uh, it looks great. Next Faber to are going to do a couple of new editions of Wiley's older books in the UK. Oh, nice. That's They're awesome. coming out this summer. So, yeah. So Wiley, I was reading a lot of his stuff. Um, and somewhere along the line, I, f- I, I was considering, I was like, what do you do if you want to learn how to write really well? Um, you know, and then the MFA stuff came up um, and I saw where Wiley was teaching at one of those. Mm. And that was one. Of, so I was like, I'm going to apply there. All right. That's really far away. That's a big sacrifice for me and my family. Um, you know, e- even before kids, that's still a huge sacrifice for, uh, you know, leaving for a week, a year, because it was a low residency program. So I applied to three different places. I got into all three with some something I'd written um, and when I sat down, I was looking at the finances, the travel, how long I would be gone. And, and Mountain View was by far the biggest sacrifice. But at mm. the same time, I felt like I was like, man, Wally teaches there. I've heard he's good. I know he can write well. So um, I made that decision. And so twice a year, I would fly out there for a week. Um, and then, you know, the rest of the time I'm sending like 20 pages in a month to Wiley right. or whoever my mentor was. He was my mentor for, for most of the time while I was up there directly. So, you know, he had a he had a big influence on me and he really kicked me into shape. And uh, it was a great experience. Um, so if there's anything you want to ask about MFA, I will I will. Well, I tell you what, I must have done something remarkable up there because we're doing this interview now. I'm going to be interviewing John Vircher again. Uh, in a couple of weeks about his new book and i've spoken to ted flanagan i mean you're all you know man there must be something right about this course there has to be but it also enables you to um to get into teaching as well didn't it i mean that's about your other job 
Yeah. So I was already teaching high school and I was like, well, this is just a bonus for me um, because it gives me a terminal degree. Um, Unfortunately, where I live, they uh, this this might blow your mind. They took away master's pay from teachers. Uh, So I don't get paid any extra. So, you know, and it wasn't a lot. North Carolina is notoriously bad for not paying their educators. So. When I got that, I actually, I was so focused on the writing part of it mm. that if they ever bring it back, that's fine, but that's not why I'm doing it. But, yeah. it, but it does allow me to teach community college um, or as an assistant professor. So I do have a, a few sections of online um, English, like entry-level English uh, at the uh, community college level that's allowed me to teach, which is kind of a side gig I do. And um, so that's been nice. So it, you know, it kind of did a few things. But but again, the most important for sure was was teaching me the discipline of writing and sitting right. down to write. Yeah, and going back to something we did say earlier about it dies with you. I mean, it's a crime novel, and mm-hmm. uh, I believe the next one you're working on, and we'll again talk about this later. The less you know, that's also a crime novel. Is that is that where you see yourself now, or is it like is anything on the table? Is it just still open? Um, like I said earlier, I like to I like a crime to happen. Mm. Um, so. As I'm you writing get those this, extremes of people, don't you? You get to see them tested at their, their highest point. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, it dies with you kind of crosses some some genre lines, I feel like. Yes, um, it does. There's not a lot of crime committed on the page, and I never intended it to be. Mm. But this new one, you know, I might go a little more. But at the same time, I feel like this new one, in some ways, is more literary, even more character development. Right. Because, because of what the narrator is going through um, personally is even stronger emotionally, I think, than what Hudson goes through. And it dies mm. with you. And, uh, you know, and it dies with you. Hudson is kind of standoffish with his feelings. Where in my new book, the narrator is going through some serious stuff and he has no choice but to uh, be affected by those feelings a lot. So um, there will be some some crime in it. Uh, I don't know how much will show up on the page. And honestly, I don't really care as long as uh, the finished product is... Uh, is good and resonates and uh, we'll find out, you know, and some people, you know, there's an occasional reader that'll get offended, like, Oh, this, I thought this book was just going to have dead bodies everywhere and crime. And I'm like, <laughs> well, that's what you thought, but that's, that's yeah. not what it is. Well, I mean, there's, there's one answer to that, which is go and write your own book and you can have as many dead bodies and anything you want in it. Exactly. Good, good time to talk about it dies with you. Tell us about it dies with you, please. Scott. So this book came about, um, you know, after my first book, didn't make it out there. Um, I started thinking about what would make a, a next book different and maybe even more sellable um, and more true. Cause I feel like if a writer is true to themselves and their voice, it is more sellable and it's a better book. So it's kind yeah. of a win-win. So with my first book, I just wanted to add something to, uh, I really wanted to write something more Southern Gothic um, in that tradition. And so I, I did, uh, there's, there's like revival preachers, there's an abduction, mm. you know, some things like that. Um, and when I sat down to write this book, I didn't know what I was going to write, but I, you know, I'd listened to some other writers say that it took them a while to find their voice. Um, so when I was writing, I was like, I want a narrator I can really relate to, um, in many ways, um, even if it's just their voice yes. or, or things like that. And so, you know, I was, I was 
throwing some ideas around in my head. And I was having a conversation with a guy one day and he was talking about his, uh, his father and kind of an estranged relationship that they had. And, uh, and this is where the title came in. Um, he was talking about some of the things his dad had done and said over the years, hurtful things, mean things, right. uh, big things. And he's like, you know what? That dies with him. That dies with his generation. He's like, I don't, I don't really want any part of that. Um, and I was like, man, there's my story right there. That's a hundred percent it. Um, and so it dies with you. Um, you know, he said it dies with him and dies with you. That, that title came into my head. And um, so I wanted to be about someone dealing with that father son relationship. But luckily for me, I have a great relationship with mine. So, uh, <laughs> but you know, a lot of people don't. And so I kind of leaned into some of the stuff I've heard people say over the years or, or e- even watched, you know, with them and their fathers. Um, so, but I did want to make the narrator similar. So I have, I have a background. I used to do jujitsu, uh, train in some mm-hmm. boxing, some kickboxing and things like that. So I was like, you know what? No, other than Joe Lansdale, a lot of people don't ever bring in combat sports. And now John Virtue's done it, um, yeah. in, a, in a different way. Um, I was like, no, nobody really brings that into uh, in fiction writing much anymore. Um, you know, they're just a guy that just happens to know how to beat people's ass. <laughs> but I was like, you know, something about combat sports or boxing, you know, it creates a different person. It's a certain discipline yeah. they have. It's a way they approach their life. And so, you know, I thought I could lean into that. And then what we were saying about being true to the voice of my area uh, the geography of it, the people of it. So I tried to bring all that into a novel. And so I kind of leaned into that. The same guy I was having a conversation with had also mentioned a junkyard uh, being tied up in his family, like worth millions of dollars. And there was a huge family fallout over it. So, which is not really what happens in no, my no, novel. No, But I was like, that would be- but There a, is a significant a great, junkyard. There is, yeah. I was like, that would be a great setting. And so- um, mm. I, it kind of just formed from there. And I was like, I definitely want some people, uh, some, uh, you know, some death in it in, in some manner. So it kind of all just came together. And when I was done, I was like, you know, I knew it was the best thing I'd ever written and it was the truest. Um, and it uses a lot of my wit. You know, there's a lot mm. of, there's a lot of, uh, I grew up around my dad, my brother, um, total smart asses, uh, <laughs> you know, always throwing one liners out. A lot of the, my friends are like that. So, you know, like when I write dialogue, I'm not straight. It's not a stretch for me. Like this is stuff I've heard my entire life. Uh, so all of that together, I felt like I had a book that was true to my voice. And that was and I would say that to a lot of young writers is, is really try to find your voice. Don't try to write necessarily the stuff you read and try to mimic that because mm. people will pick up on that. Um, I think my first b- book mimicked you know, some, some Tom Franklin fiction. Right, okay. uh, yeah. And not necessarily Wiley. There was a couple things I remember, you know, that Tom wrote that directly affected my first book, but I felt like I was trying to sound like those guys, um, which if you spoke to me, all of us in the same room, you would, there's, there's clear differences in who we mm-hmm. are and the way we speak. So, you know, finding that voice and, uh, and I, and I've leaned into that voice in it in kind of a different way with this new novel I'm writing, but it's made all the difference. It's really interesting that, I mean, what sparks the novel is we've got this Hudson Miller, he's the central character, and it is a character study because what we're, we're seeing the world through his eyes and the journey we go on is his journey. So that gets us into this story. And the story is his father gets killed and that takes him back to his hometown, which is a town he never wanted to go back to. And so right. that's the sort of the, 
essential basis of the story on top of the character part that you put in there. Mm-hmm. And clearly you wanted to do it in the first person. And that would be my other question about this. You know, we talked about the landscape and the kind of voice that comes with the community of, of Southern rural noir. Mm-hmm. How quickly did you get this voice? Because that's the essence of the book. It's Hudson Miller's voice. Voice, voice has been the most natural, voice and dialogue are the two most natural things for me as a writer, where plotting and things like that uh, are a struggle. So once you got it, you could just run with his character. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, so I would say the one I'm writing now, uh, there's similarities in voice because they both in ways sound like I do because uh, I feel like I do write first person. That's, that's a choice I make because I feel more comfortable doing it. Mm. Um, I started writing, I actually started writing the second book. I'm like, I'm going to show my chops off that I could write, you know, third person. And I started (laughs) writing it in about 30 or 40 pages in. I was like, this just isn't me. Uh, And I don't know how often to use someone's name instead of the uh, pronoun for their name. Right. Okay. Like it really bugged the hell out of me. So I was like, why don't I write what I'm good at? First person fiction. Um, You know, I've written some shorter stuff. That was first person fiction. Um, you know, I read a lot of Joe Lansdale. I think all of his is first person fiction mm. and he's so good at it. Um, Wiley's first book, Ron Rash's first book, all first person, David Joy. Um, so I guess maybe I don't know why they went away from it. They've done a hell of a great job doing third person either way. But, uh, you know, for me, I feel like this is this is my voice uh, and this is the way I write my point of view. And I, <laughs> I really do think I'm always going to write first person. I really yeah. do. Oh, well, it feels like there's a truth behind it. I'll tell you something else. When you start the novel as well, you start with the him as a bouncer. Mm-hmm. This is an interesting point because you flip any stereotype we might then have of the bouncer, you know, that people put it on. I mean, he's intelligent, he's funny, and he's pretty carefully considered in the actions he takes as well. He's not a guy to just pop off, you know. I mean, things happen, but right. but it's not about that. Did you want to do that? Is that a part of what you were doing here was kind of flip that perception? I mean, you must know a lot of boxers or, or martial arts guys, you know, who are really intelligent guys. I do. Uh, John Vircher is one John of them. John for one. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> we, when we were at, uh, before I could get into that, when we were at MFA, we would go down to the basement and he had like snuck some, uh, some training mitts. And so we were, we were, right. you know, popping off combos in the basement, uh, you know, and training down there. So yeah, I did, I did want to uh, paint an intelligent uh, fighter um, because there are a lot of them. One of my professors um, at UNC Greensboro in my undergrad um, was a black belt in jujitsu. You know, one of the smartest guys there by mm. far, you know, one of my favorite professors. Um, and then you have people like John, myself that, that are educated that have also, you know, mixed it up a little bit on the matter mm. in the so, yeah, because uh, there's a lot of those guys out there. But in a lot of movies, you see them and they're punch drunk. They're not very intelligent. They're very impulsive. Uh, and so, yeah, that was very deliberate. Um, and so, yeah, I had a lot of fun doing that. Yeah, because, I mean, too often they're just foils in a story, aren't they? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I thought it, what was really interesting, there's a point in the book, I think, where actually um, HUD says, Discipline, science, and ecstasy, those are the things he gets out of boxing. And it is almost like he's taking what he's getting from boxing, and it's a life lesson. Mm-hmm. 
And you hear that so often on, and really out in the streets, you know, where they get kids into boxing clubs because they learn discipline and that gives them some kind of start in life. Yeah. So, um, he mentions in the book a couple times that he was in his teenage years, kind of mad, angry at his parents that had split up, you know, it was kind of going down that wrong path. And, mm. um, and then Boston sort of saved him. And, um, and, and he mentions that his biggest loss of, you know, getting, getting banned briefly from boxing of losing his job, teaching young kids um, how to box, because I think he had that connection with them and wanted them to kind of go down that path instead of another way um, that could lead to some, some, some bad things or destruction for sure. So yeah, I think it's that discipline. And he brings that up when he gets to the salvage yard, because he doesn't know anything about it. And he says, you know, if I'm going to make this work, it's going to have to be like my first days of boxing, learning how to step before I throw a punch, you know? Yeah. So everything becomes, he breaks everything in down into a, like a, the sweet science, but he applies it to, uh, to other sports, not other sports, but other, but other the, jobs. The light, other yeah, yeah. 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 Interesting because, um, Hud's drawn back to Flint Creek when his father's murdered. And also then he's kept there because he's, he inherits the scrapyard, as you said, that feels like physical things. But in fact, what's actually holding him here is, is more the questions he's got in his head about his relationship with his father. Because one of the things about the scrapyard is that he doesn't know why his father gave him the scrapyard. They never agreed on anything. He always used to put him down. And now the guy's giving him a scrapyard. Did he love him? So essentially, those are more essential questions, in a sense, behind what's going on, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. Um, so there, that's then an emotional element that's kind of, uh, and again, it's, I don't think it's overdone in the novel because, you know, no, part of the not. time he's trying to figure out you know, what happened, but at the same time, trying to figure out, you know, how did he feel about his father? How did his father feel about him? Um, it, it was, confu- it is confusing if someone you speak to once a year leaves you this, this salvage yard mm. worth a million dollars, um, especially, you know, when you need it. So you're not going to turn it down. So, you know, when he moves back, he does contemplate that a lot. And he asked his, his coworker, his dad's former coworker, Charlie questions about his dad here and there. You know, so I think he's just trying to make sense of his sense of it all. Maybe get some sort of closure by going back, um, and then he kind of gets into the uh, amateur sleuth side of things, where he, yes, you know, yes, of course, there's a fire lit under. Mm. Yeah, he's like, all right, maybe yeah. I do. Maybe we need to figure this out. Some yeah. something's in here because yeah. his attitude in the first place is almost to, well, leave it to the cops, you know, and right, yeah, yeah, they'll figure it's it out. It's a bit like that, but of course. Yeah. There's an awful lot going on, and he's starting to find out things. There's revelations as we go through the book. He's finding out things about his dad, which, in the worst light, could be terrible. And in in a right. well, maybe, but maybe they're not. That's the point. There might be right. a slightly less um, terrible reason for what's going on. But anyway, that 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 develops from that. Um, when he returns, though, he never mixes with the locals. He never quite gets into it. You know, he's, he's, he's half back. He still considers himself that outsider, really. He's still not comfortable with, with the town itself, is he? He's not. And, and it's mostly because his dad was kind of tied into that power center of town. He kind of mm-hmm. rubbed elbows with the mayor, the fire chief, the cops, you know, all, you know, all the guys that have any sway in the town. So when he moves back, I think he, he automatically has his guard up. And he says in one part, you know, I've lived like a hermit in the rental house because he inherits some rental properties from his yes. dad, too. Um, so he, he basically lives like a hermit. Then he kind of starts getting out there and he doesn't really dislike the people for the most part he runs into. He realizes these are just soft of the earth. There's some good people here. But, you know, that you know, you find out later 
there are some people in the town, obviously, you know, that aren't so good. No, uh, there, there are hints of racism. There's, um, there's a religious hypocrisy in some people. It, it kind of, it's almost as if they assume that if you go to church on Sunday, you can make up for being a bad person during the week. You know, it's a, yep. it's a bit like that. And of course, yes. we know there's something nefarious going on in the background. How much it involves his dad, we don't know. But, but that's what he's going to get himself into. Um, let's talk about Charlie then, because I think Charlie's a fascinating character. <laughs> Love Charlie. It's, he's I my favorite. It's, it's, he's Leland's man at the scrapyard. And of right. course, when Leland's dead, you know, HUD goes to him and he says, look, do you want to come back? And he practically has to beg the guy to come back and take the job that he knows the guy needs, but he's not going to just say, I need the job. And of course, he's on Social Security and he wants his cash anyway. But there's something really lovable about that gruff, mistrusting character. And, and he's a lonely guy at the end of the day as well. But of course, we, we come to find he plays a part in this story, too, with, uh, with the investigation. Yeah, so Charlie at first, Hudson doesn't know how to take him. He's like, man, this guy's just grumpy. And he is, he's grumpy. He wants to, he doesn't like a lot of change. You know, he's, he's already accepted the fact that his boss has been killed. You know, I'm just going to sit home. You know, I don't, I don't need anybody else bothering me. You know, you know, last time I got involved with the job, look what happened, kind of a deal. So, you know, Hudson's like, I don't know how to run this place. So I'm going to have to, to lasso somebody in that can run a salvage yard. Um, and that happens to be Charlie. And so, you know, about halfway through the book, they're kind of getting to know, know each other. And Hudson says, basically their, their relationship had become like a little bit of shop talk and just like, just smart ass comments back and yeah. forth. And that's kind of, it's kind of a love language. Uh, I had someone that was, um, I can't remember who it was. I don't know if it was an editor or an agent. Someone had said, why would Hudson say that to him? Uh, and one of the things he says in the book I'm like, that's just, that's just kind of their, their manly love language. Making fun of each other is like, you know, saying, it's, hey, it's hey, easier than I, saying what you really think. Yeah. And it's kind of bonding. Exactly. And they do a lot of that. They, they take shots at each other, the whole book. But, you know, I have people like that in my life uh, and, you know, and we have a lot of fun, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you care for those people and, and he ends up caring for Charlie and vice versa, clearly. Um, but Charlie ends up to be a fairly endearing guy. He, you know, he's not a he bad does. guy whatsoever. He's just, he's just sort of a lonely guy. Um, maybe doesn't trust people too much. So kind of keeps to himself, doesn't want to know too much um, until again, the fire is lit under Charlie as well. And then he, you know, he kind of goes for it trying to figure out what happened to his former boss. Yeah. And a curious thing, I don't know whether you intended this in the first place or, or whether it kind of developed this way, but it's, it's Lucy comes along. Yes. And then we've got this trio and they, they become a gang, if you like, you know, and they're out to solve the crime at the end of the day. Was that sort of the way you envisaged it? Yeah, I knew I wanted somebody that felt a little disenfranchised in the book that was yeah. already in the town. Um, and and she definitely embodies that, um, you know, and you have to you have to be careful when you're writing a young character, um, mm. you know. And so my, my job with writing her was making it believable that she would be out because she's the one because, you know, part of the premise of the, the book, and this is on the, the cover or on the back yeah. cover, like, you know, her brother was missing yes, um, for months, but she feels like she's been railroaded um, because she's just some girl that moved yeah. down from, you know, her family's from Mexico. Um, and, and she just doesn't feel like she's getting a fair shake. So that just lights a fire under her 
And so she kind of uses social media, word of mouth, and tries to get word out. Um, so, you know, I had to make that really believable. And I'm like, uh, and I've, I've taught quite a few students that had moved from Mexico, you know, or their right. parents were from Mexico. Um, and some of the kids I, I've taught over the years just have that toughness that she has. And so I always knew that we kind of come out in her character. And so, you know, it's almost like you can't tell her no. It's either like you get off the, the tracks or get on the train with me because, you know, I'm going straight forward with this, figuring out what happened, you know. And if you don't want to find out, then you better not stick around because I'm going to figure this out. And they're like, you know, like, you know, we might as well help her. You know, we want to yeah. we want to know the answers too. you know, what's our excuse? This girl's 15 years old riding around on a bicycle trying to figure things out. What's our excuse? And I think that really you know, test their pride a little bit. And they're like, you know what? We will help this girl um, to whatever capacity we can. Yeah. And it goes with the story. That's brilliant. But um, the the other aspect of that, of course, as well, is it is generational because this is a generational story too, of course. And there's a little bit about, for instance, like what is it for a young person in this town, particularly a young person with a Mexican background, for instance, in this kind of place, you know, I mean, some people are settled in these places and they're happy for the rest of their lives and they don't mind you can just see for some people, there's just nothing there anymore. Right. And I think having Charlie, he's from, you know, he's from the South, but he's not from that town. So you get a little bit of his perspective as an outsider. Mm. Hudson lived there for a while. So he don't really, he kind of figures what this town is about when he comes back. And then kind of Lucy confirms some of those things for him. Um, Talks about how tough it is for her at school. She kind of makes comments about, you know, how backwards the school board is and how they, you know, they were banning some of her favorite books and, and stuff like that. So it kind of just like confirms in Hudson's mind that, you know, some people in town haven't changed a bit. Um, and that some of this stuff carries on for a generation, which again, goes back to the title where, you know, that, that stuff dies right. with that generation, you know, some of that just ridiculousness that, uh, that, that has carried on in that town. Mm. Yeah. So Lucy really helps, you know, highlight some of that stuff that Hudson already kind of suspected was going on. Yeah, sure. Well, slightly left field question here, but there's a point in the book where Hud mentions that the trailer park, the three, the three trailers he's inherited, they're called Ponderosa. And he says, I have no reason, I have no idea why. Why why did you put that in there? (laughs) All right. So there used to be this place near my house. Um, I think it was like a, salon slash tanning area and i'm pretty sure it just used to have a sign out in front just really just kind of bland sign and called the ponderosa and i'm always and i so always wondered the same reason hudson wondered like why do they call it the ponderosa what does that even mean i think i looked it up like a year ago and i've already forgotten what it means uh uh so (laughs) i don't know it just sounds like I, like he says in the book, it's maybe because it sounds fancy, but he's like, it's not fancy at all. And that's the way this place is. Uh, and I think the sign might still be there. I'll, I'll have to get a picture of it <laughs> and send it to you. But uh, um, it's kind of like, why do they name it that? Because it doesn't seem to fit, uh, you know, the Ponderosa, you m- might picture palm trees and some water, some right. people sipping on a daiquiri, not this, you know, these three modular homes, or uh, <laughs> in my case, this little brick salon you know, tanning salon kind of in the middle of nowhere. So yeah, it was just, it was just, again, bringing those details of, of geography and, and my local area into it and making it real, even though confusing stuff like why is, why does he call 
the property he owns with the three houses on it, the Ponderosa. I have no, I have no idea why he called it that. I just wondered because there was a series called Bonanza back in the day, back in the nineteen sixties and 70s. And the, the, that was called Ponderosa. The ranch was Ponderosa, I think. Really? And Yeah. And I just think it's funny <laughs> because even in this country, I mean, shows like that were popular and suddenly places yeah. got named the Ponderosa Cafe and things like that. I mean, in the middle of a Welsh mining valley, you know, it's just maybe, just, Hey, maybe that's weird. it. <laughs> maybe you might be right. Hey, and his dad, well, I'll tell you one. why I wondered that because the other yeah. thing is the guy's name is Hudson. It's shortened to HUD. HUD is a Paul Newman film. There's plenty of kind of film references in the book. And there's a few yeah. times I came across some phrases and I thought, you know what? That could be innocent, but that also could be taken from a film. Yes. Do you like doing that in the book? I do. Um, I, I would so. say film was, uh, film was my first love before reading. Uh, as far as at least as as an adult, you know, I, I really do like film, uh, independent film, uh, stuff like that. And so occasionally Hudson will say stuff that sounds like maybe something from a movie or he'll, or he'll straight up reference one. Yes. Uh, because, uh, like I said, staying true to my own voice, I'm always referencing movies, um, whether it's a comedy or a horror movie. It, mm. it doesn't matter. You know, it seems to, to, to surface in conversations all the time because I like movies so much. So, you know, that kind of comes out with Hudson. He mentions some uh, mentioned some films. He, he and Charlie talk about the movie Roadhouse, which, yeah. you know, over here, they play that movie nonstop <laughs> on cable television. It's always on TBS. Um, it's always playing. And so even Charlie, the book says, yeah, I love that movie. It comes on basic cable. So, you know, there, there is a lot of pop culture, you know, references. There's some song references, uh, some in very different genres. Um, yeah. They're mentioned in the book too. Yeah, no, it's fun. It's fun to come across those things as a reader. You know, it's just a nice little thing. It, it doesn't interfere with the narrative at all. It's just great to, to listen to that kind of thing or to, to pick up on that kind of thing. Um, couple of questions just to finish off then one is i mean you're, you're an english instructor now you're a writer you're a dad of a couple of young kids yes how the hell do you fit it all in um well so currently and luckily i'm on summer break during right. the school year i mean it, it is quite a challenge um because my daughter's two my son just turned one mm. um and so pretty much my whole life as a, as a signed writer, even before my book came out, I had, I had landed my agent right around the time my daughter was born. So I, that's all I've really known. So I've had to adjust that. Um, really, it's just about proper balance. Um, kids get priority, obviously, yeah, and they good. should. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Oh, sorry, I said I good as if I was instructing you there. I didn't mean that. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, uh, I don't write hardly ever when they're awake if they're if they're kind of busy doing something and i might sneak a, a paragraph in mm. um but really i kind of wait till and i was kind of like this before kids to be honest with you i would wait till my wife went to bed a lot of times during the school year um and then i would stay up and write mm. uh so not to take away from our time um and so maybe it's not that much different other than there's just a little bit less time and i'm more yeah, tired yeah. Um, but I'm still someone that kind of writes when everybody else is asleep. Um, or if I have an idea, I can write, I can write it in a notepad, my phone real quick and put it back, um, during the day or, you know, unfortunately for my wife, sometimes I write in my head. 
So she'll be talking to me and she'll know I'm writing something in my head because <laughs> I, I write full scenes of dialogue out in my head before they go on my paper. So, um, and then you can keep that, you, you can transfer that to the page then. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I'll remember right. the exact phrase uh, right. and write it down or I'm like, Oh, this would be a funny way of putting it. Like, uh, like, Oh, this is a simile that just came across my head. I'm going to find a place to put this right. in the novel. So um, I would say right now, um, I found a pretty good balance of, of being able to, because uh, I can stay up later because it's summer, um, being able to get, um, I've been getting able to, uh, been able to write more than an hour at night and some nights a couple hours and some nights none at all, depending, my if my brain's not in it, I'm not going to sit down. Yeah, I know sure, writers sure. sit down like it's a job and that's fine. I actually envy that sometimes. They're like, I'm going to sit down and write something. I'm not that guy. I'm like, if I have something to write, I'm going to sit down and write. Um, or if I need to go back, but I'm a constant editor too and, and mm. reviser. So I revise as I go. So if I showed you what I'm working on right now, you know, it's not polished, but at the same time, you wouldn't think it's a rough, rough draft. I see what you mean. Yeah. Because it's not because I've revised. Mm. So sometimes at night I'm just going back. Um, like right now I'm like going back through the first hundred pages and just kind of polishing things um, while other ideas form. So, you know, if I can... Well, I was going to say the ideas come to you kind of organically anyway, don't they? You don't um, you don't plan a novel in any big way to start with. Would that be true no. to say? Yeah, yeah. So I'm not I'm not a planner with this new novel. I've I've planned a little bit. I've kind of made a, a timeline, but not compared right. to what some people do. I'm I'm so serious about making this this novel work and making it happen that I've you know I'm even reading some books on craft, which I usually I haven't done in years. Um, mm. I am writing things down in, in sort of a planning order um, and I'll write things down what needs to happen in this chapter. And so I've started like putting what happens in each chapter and even highlighting because the new novel is, um, you know, it, it's about a guy and his wife dealing with fertility issues, um, right. which a lot of guys don't write about. I don't know of no, any who wrote no, about true. it. Definitely not in crime fiction, right? Mm. Uh, so I want to write a crime fiction novel where where the desperation that the character meets is he, he and his wife going through fertility procedures, which right. are insanely expensive, and they're not covered by insurance over here. I don't know if they are anywhere, but um, they're they're straight no, out of pocket. It's an expensive business here too, yeah. Yeah, and they don't even pay with healthcare. Yeah, so imagine, you know, you're faced with ten, twenty, maybe thirty thousand um, dollars just to have a chance at having a child mm. and, uh, and he's faced with that. And so that's going to put him, um, say I'm going off on a tangent here. We were talking about schedules. Uh, no, 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 it's video. fine because I honestly, <laughs> my last question would have probably, well, there'd be, there'll be one question afterwards, but I would have asked you what you were yeah. writing and how it was going. So. Yeah. So well, it's always fascinating to know what the right, because the right has always moved on a step, you know, your yeah. book is out now. You've got to be writing something else. Absolutely. Cause it, you know, it, it'll, you'll drive yourself crazy just thinking about the book that's out there and what it's doing and what opportunities are coming up for that. So you have to have something to occupy your mind. So yeah, during that time I have made for myself, you know, whether that's every day or not, um, I'm writing this one. And so, so the narrator is a teacher. So I'm a teacher. He's an English teacher. I'm an English teacher. He's in his thirties. Um, same here. So again, I'm keeping true to my voice in a different way. Um, still kind of a smart aleck, uh, witty guy, but, uh, a little bit jaded, more jaded in certain ways than Hudson. More direct uh, kind of um, set autobiography or autobiographical uh, notes. Just the, um, the, see, we in the book, he's going through, he and his wife are going through in vitro. Um, right. 
my wife and I had, we, we lost two babies to miscarriage back to back, um, which is really, it was really tough for both of us. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, you know, and I've had other friends, so we never, luckily for us, we didn't have to go to, you know, the step of in vitro, which can be, you know, very emotional and financially burdensome. So, I wanted to take it farther in my book. Um, I always wanted to write about miscarriage in some way because it it, it affected me in such a mm. great way, to be honest with you. Um, and so I was like, what would make, you know, this this narrator desperate to, to maybe toe some moral lines that he's never, you know, towed before? And so he's an English teacher, sort of loses his job right before the summer, he and his wife have just agreed to start in vitro. And she's like, maybe if she call it off, he's like, you know, we're going to go through with it. I'll have a job when school starts. Um, so he, he picks up side work with a former student's father. Who's kind of this country boy millionaire, um, kind of a mysterious character. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of those where he kind of keeps to himself. A lot of people don't really know where he has all, got all of his money. And, uh, and I'll just say that, that most of it's legit uh, and legal, uh, but he's, Okay. Got one small toe dipped into something very, very bad, and <laughs> Hudson stumbles acro- across what that bad thing is, and he, and he, you know, I'm at the point where he, not Hudson, sorry. This I want, yeah, I thought he wouldn't. It's not, not the same character. No, okay. his name's Ellis. His name's <laughs> Ellis Turner. Okay. Uh, his name's Ellis Turner. Okay. So he, um, he gets to the point where he's going to have to uh, make a decision because he actually gets kind of indebted to these people his dad's tied up with right. in a way. And so he wants to separate him from himself from that. But also at the same time, they start dangling a huge amount of money in front of him. Um, you know, and, and going through what he's going through, the one goal he has and his wife has is, is to have a, a child and, and money in this case would help that. So he's really faced with a huge dilemma in the book. Um, and he also cares for his former student, and and he starts to like the former student's dad and the fact that they're tied up in this this business that they they kind of stumbled upon too and right. kind of got hooked into and probably want out of. So he's tra- you know at this point in the book I'm deciding how how far does he go? Does he take any of the money? Does uh is he going to do something to help take this criminal element down in the book? Um, so it's going to be a lot of fun. So I've had to schedule it, and this is why I've been planning it. Back to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, it's timed around his wife's in vitro procedures because the, you know, right. that's, that's, that's all clockwork, you know? Yes, of course. Yes. Starts on her cycle. Yeah, I and see what you mean. Yeah. When, when does she take her stimulation mm. shots? When did they do egg retrieval? Does it fail? Does it, do, is it successful the first time? I haven't made those decisions yet. Um, so. But you can't you afford know, not to be aware of that schedule because otherwise everything else could go wonky. Yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's given me a timeline and a schedule throughout the book, and I'm gonna have to, uh, what you know, my challenge now is balancing. I don't want the readers to sit in the uh, the fertility office with the couple the entire book. Of course, they're going to go to the you know to the doctor and they're going to get news here and there. But how much is going to show up on the page? Um, and, and you know, but because I want to stay true true to that, and readers yeah. who have been through stuff like that. But at the same time, you know. Even they don't want to read about, you know, they could read a blog on IVF if they want yeah, to read cool. that. Yeah, sure. But to balance like this this compelling mm. criminal element, but also this emotional part of, you know, this, you know, they've lost three or four 
children at this point in miscarriage, you know, they're, they're nearing 40 years old. Um, mm. they're, they're desperate. They don't have a lot of money. Um, but how desperate is he going to become or how far is he willing to go to, uh, to make this happen? So that's, that's what I'm working on. And yeah, like you said earlier, it's called the less, you know. So again, that's another title I'm going to fight for. I like hell because I like that title. Cause it does neither of my titles exist in the world. Um, and that's important to me. And also for some reason, I like to use personal pronouns. So it does with you and the yeah, less, you know, it's got it an immediacy. It, it definitely works. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that's my brand. I'm trying to build over here. <laughs> Okay. Well, I tell you what, I, I did this uh, with John last year. It sounds fascinating. When you write that book, when that book comes out, we'll chat again. How about that? That's another incentive for me to finish it. So uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Cause uh, this has been great. And uh, you're knowledgeable and you, and you read the books that you're interviewing people about and you know what <laughs> happened in those books. You know, and I'm not saying the people I've interviewed me so far haven't cause they have, they've done great. But yeah. Uh, I could tell you read it and you know what's going on and you know what I was going for and you had questions. So it's been awesome. Well, no, it's, it's a really fun read apart from anything else, you know, but it, it is a good read, really good read. And for me, I don't like uh, crime novels now that don't have character. Right. Because, you know, when, when you're in here with HUD, you really, you feel his story and it is his story. We could almost take the crime elements out and you still have some story here around mm -hmm. how this man's character is. And, you know, and that's, I think you need that in a good crime novel, a really good crime novel. I think people want that much more now. One, one thing then, and I'll let you go, Scott. Okay. A recommendation, please, sir. It can be a book uh, you've just read or something that you hold dear to your heart. I might go more current because if I start going to the past, I'll never shut up. Um, <laughs> well, we mentioned a few names already, so we've given people a few hints about Wiley Cash and yeah 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 so i'm sure most people listening probably know him uh i would think so uh peter ferris i mentioned him earlier i'm, I'm reading his uh second i think it's his second book because again he got published in france before over here yes right uh, it's bizarre but the new one is called the devil himself and it man it's it, it does go dark on the page i mean it's right it's gritty it's tough uh but characters you know, very quirky, interesting. So there's a lot of character building there. But uh, I'm, I think I'm 45, 50% through. It's it's really good so far. Um, Eli Craner's debut, Don't Know Tough, mm. uh, probably my favorite in the past year. Um, do you know about that book? I do. Um, well, it was a bit of bad luck. I was hoping that we could get him interviewed, but it just wasn't. The schedule is already so well set that it yeah. wasn't fair to interview somebody and then expect them to wait months for it to come out. So well, maybe well, in the future, one. I'll get to him. Well, he's got another one. They just, they, they just did the cover of reveal for today called, uh, I think it's called Arkansas dogs. Right. Uh, I saw that actually. Now you yeah, mentioned it. Yeah. yeah I'll keep an eye out for that one then. So, um, and then a female author that just knocked my socks off. Um, she has one of the blurbs on the back of my book. That's the only blurb on my book that uh, the author I didn't uh, reach out to personally or, or know a little bit beforehand. Um, she knew somebody, somebody at my publisher. And so when I got it from her, I was just so grateful. And I was like, um, I got to check her stuff out. And um, I think she's from Mississippi. I think she won all the awards in Mississippi, like Mississippi Author of the Year. Right. Uh, 
It's got a ton of Amazon reviews, so it must have done well when it came out a few years back, and I just got a hold of it recently. Um, Tiffany Quay Tyson, uh, The Past is Never, which is, man, that's a fantastic title, but that book um, is just mind-blowing, and I think it just got um, nominated for a huge award in France. Um, right. But anyways, the, it is, it's a true nod to uh, old-school Southern Gothic, I think. Uh, it's got a little bit of mysticism in it. You know, religious elements, uh, but it's also got some crime that happens and a ton of character development, a great narrator. Um, It's written mostly in the first person. Um, So you have a little bit of first person, but you also have some third person narration that kind of hits on the town lore. Mm. Um, So, yeah, the past is never. That's another one. Um, And then John's book just came out after the lights go out. I just started that one. I'm actually reading three or four books at the same time right now, which I usually don't do. But uh, I, I'm enjoying all of them. And let me think if there's anything out, else out there before you uh, let me go here um, this year. Uh, there's there's an up-and-coming guy that, that published one that's coming out with a sequel soon. His name is Mark Westmerland. He wrote one called A Violent Gospel, which is also very Southern Gothic. And it's kind of like the show Justified in many ways. A right. lot of fun, a lot of bravado on the page. Uh, yeah. Uh, a sequel to that called a morning song is coming out and he's also shopping his, uh, his new like longer novel to uh, some agents right now. So that's another one I would, would highly recommend. It's a, it's a ton of fun. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an also a nod to old school Southern Gothic while, you know, still being modern and, and just a total blast. Great. What I'll do is I'll put those on the program notes so people can catch up with them. You know, they can check them out properly if they want to. Scott, that's been great. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on. So I want to say a big thank you, first of all, to Scott for what was a fabulous interview. Thank you very much. It Dies With You is available from Crooked Lane Books in hardback. And if you click on the link on the program notes, you can order a copy through us on bookshop.org if you've enjoyed the show please do rate and subscribe with your favorite podcast provider i'll be back with another interview very shortly but in the meantime goodbye for now and thank you very much for listening <laughs>